Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to America's Home for Stadium News and Information. Stadium's USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. The 2017 baseball season is underway, and with it, a new baseball stadium is making its debut. SunTrust Park, the new home of the Atlanta Braves. Does this stadium deliver on the promise of a baseball experience superior to Turner Field? We'll find out from one of the first baseball writers in America to see the new stadium. Our conversation continues with former Chicago Bulls sharpshooter Craig Hodges. What's it like when Michael Jordan passes you the ball with the expectation you'll make the shot? Exploding scoreboards, mile-high seats, sausage races. It's all part of an amazing baseball adventure. Author Josh Pihigian is our guide. And we'll go to the water cooler and talk shop with Stadiums USA executive producer Jeff Schmidt. We'll say farewell to Detroit's Joe Louis Arena. But first, the stadiums beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, hockey fans in Detroit will say goodbye this weekend to venerable Joe Louis Arena. The Red Wings finale Sunday marks the end of the downtown venue that opened back in 1979. Secondary ticket markets are reporting the cheapest seats are going for 230 bucks. The Wings will miss the playoffs this year. The first time in 25 years they will not see the postseason. The mayor of St. Petersburg outlined a plan this week detailing why the current Tropicana Field site is the best spot for a new ballpark for the Tampa Bay Rays. Rick Kreisman highlighted the advantages of staying put, saying traffic is a much bigger problem in Tampa and that the St. Petersburg site could potentially be a lucrative boom with redevelopment opportunities. The team continues to explore options for a new stadium in the Tampa-St. Pete area. City leaders in Washington, D.C. are working on a development plan that could include a new football stadium for the Redskins. The city's sports authority is planning a half-billion-dollar makeover of underutilized land near RFK Stadium. The land is currently owned by the federal government. But the mayor of D.C. has asked President Trump to turn over the 190 acres to the city. RFK Stadium will be completely vacant next year when the D.C. United soccer team moves into a new venue. And this year's opening day at Milwaukee's Miller Park marked the 64th year Dan McKinney has worked at the ballpark. The 80-year-old no longer walks the aisles as a beer vendor, but checks in the younger vendors before each game. Dan started back in 1954 when the Braves were in town. He sold peanuts, hot dogs, and soda at County Stadium. Dan says when he started, beers were 30 cents a cup. Way to go, Dan. 
Bill, that is the very latest. Yes, Jeff. And as our listeners may remember, we've had Dan on as a guest in the past. A fascinating fellow. Thanks, Jeff. For many months, we have heard about the new baseball park in Cobb County, north of Atlanta. And the Atlanta Braves moving into this new park. And it's called SunTrust Park. One of the very first to see it in use is New York Yankees beat writer Randy Miller, who covers the Bronx Bombers for New Jersey Advanced Media. He's written an interesting story about it at nj.com, and we invite you to check it out. Randy, I was fascinated with your review of this ballpark, and you've seen a lot of ballparks. How does it stack up? Were you impressed with what you saw? Well, I I like the ballpark. Don't love it. I was hoping to be blown away like I was the first time in Pittsburgh's uh, new ballpark, first time in San Francisco's, the first time in Wrigley, Fenway, Dodger Stadium. And uh, while it is a nice ballpark, it does not take that next step, go to the new level. I didn't have a problem with Turner Field. This one's about 15 miles outside of downtown Atlanta. There's going to be a lot of restaurants out. I, I was the Yankees played the first game there, the exhibition game there, mm-hmm. a couple of days before the season opener. There were some things that weren't quite ready on the inside, but I, I, I give them a pass for that. You know, the elevator, the press elevator, was, they were struggling with that. The restaurants outside beyond center field aren't done yet. I hear by June they will be. There's going to be a big Renaissance hotel, and it, look, it's beautiful, but it's just not one of those stadiums that I think that uh, you say, you look at it and say, oh, my God, I have to travel to land and go to that ballpark. And I've done that as a kid and uh, uh, when I was younger, and I've done it as an adult. Does it actually constitute what we would think of as a, a significant upgrade from its predecessor, Turner Field? I don't think so. And uh, it's in Cobb County where the money is, and uh, that's where their season ticket holders are. I like Turner Field. I was there for the last time last year. I was there many, many times from uh, 16 years of covering the Phillies. I probably covered more than uh, 100, 150 games there. And I went last year when the Yankees traded for this top prospect, Clint Frazier. They sent me to his hometown in Loganville, and I stopped at the airport. I flew in, and I was on my way to Loganville. The Pirates were playing the Braves, and I stopped in and watched about five or six innings to see if it's the last time. And I kind of reflected on that stadium, knowing it was the last time I was going to be there. I looked around, walked around a little bit, and I think Turner Field's a nice ballpark. problem is, is that Atlanta is not a great baseball town. During the 14 years in a row that they, that they won the division, they didn't draw great. And uh, I think that the Braves' ownership is hoping that that's because uh, the people who buy the tickets, the people who have the big money in suburban Atlanta, Atlanta area, are in Cobb County, and that's why they put it out there. The one bad thing about Turner Field, while it's a very nice ballpark, it never developed anything nearby. It was impossible to get a cab there. Mm-hmm. I think there was one small hotel uh, nearby, uh, no restaurants nearby, and they're hoping that uh, this ballpark experience will be similar to Camden Yards in Baltimore. When, when you're in that area, you make a full day and night of it as opposed to just coming for 
three, four hours for a ball game. Randy, I wanted to ask you a little bit about a breaking story from the Tampa Bay Times, which just came out, talking about the fact that St. Petersburg's mayor is laying out the city's plan for a new stadium for the Tampa Bay Rays. This would be a new ballpark. It would be on the existing site of Tropicana Field. Now, of course, you've hit all of the ballparks. Uh, What is your sense of it? Can this solution work, or do they need another location for this ballpark? I would say the best location for the Tampa Bay Rays would be uh, Montreal. (laughs) Really? Uh, Yeah, I do. I I don't think baseball is going to work there. I I covered 16 years of Philly, so I lived in that area two months a year. For a long time, I've, uh, in fact, the Yankees opened the Tropicana Field this year, so I was just there this week. It's a terrible ballpark. The area is a bad area. And me being a guy that's uh, very interested in ballparks, when I would see the Rays writers for uh, spring training games, I would ask. I'd ask around. Uh, from what I understand, everyone thinks the stadium needs to be on the Tampa side. Sounds like a lot of fans don't come in from the Tampa area to go over that uh, that long bridge there. And uh, they've had some good teams over the year, and they, they never, never draw they get okay TV ratings, but still near the bottom. And uh, I just don't sense there's ever been any excitement over the Rays. It's kind of like Florida. They put a new stadium in, in downtown Miami. It's okay ballpark, but they're not going to draw there. Randy, it's a pleasure. Randy Miller, our guest. We suggest you follow him regularly via Twitter and via NJ.com. We thank him for the visit. Now, stay tuned. We're going to welcome in two-time NBA champion Craig Hodges, who allows us a peek behind the curtain with his days with the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. That is coming up next on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. One of the great rivalries in professional basketball can be found between two cities that are 90 miles away. Chicago and Milwaukee. Very few players have played on both sides of that rivalry, but our next guest is a guy who has played on both. Craig Hodges was a standout with the Bucks, And then later on, of course, he helped the Bulls to two championships in a uh, 10-year NBA career, which ended after that second NBA championship. From that point on, Craig was unable to find work in the NBA. He has some theories about why that was, and he made that into a book called Longshot, The Triumphs and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter. Craig, just in the recent time, 
Jerry Krause passed away, who would have been general manager of the Bulls during your time there. Jerry was a very controversial person, to say the least, in professional basketball. I wondered what your reaction was to his passing. Well, you know, whenever you cross paths and travel with someone for four years, you you have a certain relationship. And once again, send condolences to his family and and the people who had a chance that Jerry touched their lives, man. So, you know, it's one of those things everyone has to transit at some point. And, you know, the things that he was able to do on a professional level, man, whether you liked him or not, they had the team move in a certain direction. And, I, you know, I just thank him for bringing me in and bringing me back home to have a chance to be on the first championship in Chicago. Jerry has a place in Chicago uh, sports history for what he did and as far as uh, putting our team together. You, of course, played in one of the great stadiums ever built, the Chicago Stadium. And take us to courtside and give us a sensation of what that stadium felt like as a player. Well, I'll just put this one experience. Uh, the night we beat Portland, the stadium got so loud that my ears shut down that it got to a point where all the sounds connected at once and my ears went to just nothing <laughs> that's how loud it got and the energy the energy and the intimacy of the stadium is is something that i think is lost in the in the grandeur of the, the new arenas and the you know the luxury boxes and all of that type of stuff that you know that courtside seat used to be a courtside seat now it's more of a commercial for with celebrities there sure <laughs> you know as opposed to you know as opposed to the intimate settings of Chicago Stadium, the Mecca in Milwaukee, you know, buildings that had some historical presence about them. Boston Garden, you know, places that had an old feel to them that almost felt like you were going on stage at an opera house that's been there for 100 years. I think those are the great things that I feel. I tell people all the time how blessed I was to play during the Golden Era basketball where I, I played against the greatest, some of the greatest players and Hall of Fame history, as well as some of the greatest arenas that where some of the greatest rivalries were settled. And I had a chance to settle one of those in the form. I had a chance to be, you know, playing Boston Garden and against Larry Bird and, and the great Celtics team, so and Dr. J in the spectrum. So those old arenas carried a lot of weight, man. And I think when you stop and if you go and that's why I feel like players still love going into Madison Square Garden because it carries the history and it still looks like what you saw on TV when you were growing up watching. You know, we haven't had many people talk about the Mecca. You mentioned the name. Talk about that place. It was one of the smaller arenas, but boy, it got awfully cozy in there. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, that was, that was the beauty of Milwaukee. When we played there, it was... It was really um, a real homey environment from the standpoint that both us and the, and, um, the Marquette Warriors, we were roommates, so to speak, and that it was a cool environment when some days we would be finishing practice and they would be coming on to practice and we get to interact with them. And then likewise, just the, the size of it wasn't a mecca, it wasn't a huge arena, but when the fans got in there, and the lights came on, and they had, they had um, the way the lighting was set up in the Mecca, 
it was uh, almost lit where the lights in the stands would go down and all the lights would be on the court. And it was a cool feeling, man, that it was like you're on stage. And when the sounds got going and, and the fans were very raucous in Milwaukee, <laughs> you know, so we had a we had a great fan base as well as the arena to, to bring it in. Michael Jordan drew almost a continuous double team, as you know. But he would get right. rid of the ball. But one thing, if you got the ball, you better hit it because he's leaving a lot of people wide open for shots. Tell me, did you feel any pressure when he, he uh, drew a double team, you were left wide open, and then there you were with a shot? Did you feel pressure? I'd better put this in. Well, you know, I think that's the that's the beautiful part, man, of me coming into Chicago when I came into Chicago compared to some other players who may have have felt that pressure. We had beaten the Bulls a couple of times in the playoffs, so going against and playing against Michael wasn't anything new to me. Uh, so the pressure we had went far far in the playoffs. We had went to Eastern Conference Finals. So when I came to Chicago, I was pretty pretty much a veteran player. So. I wanted those. I wanted the ball in those situations because I've had them and I've been successful before other places. So it wasn't anything really new. But the, the main thing that I knew that I had a unique opportunity to help Michael as well as Scotty to be able to stage the court in a way where they would get their opportunities to slash to the basket. And the beautiful thing about them was they knew that if they passed the ball over there to me, they were going to go in the basket probably 60 to 70 percent of the time and mm-hmm. you can't really you can't really argue with that at that rate of success and they knew how to get it to me at the proper times man they would never over dribble they were always when the double team come the ball was coming so yep. it was a great situation where we understood all what everyone did to make us successful as a team you know michael jordan isn't the only great guard you played with in your career uh you also played right. with Sidney moncrief prior to that and and i know you have to have yeah. a warm spot in your heart for playing with him no doubt you know and, and that's you know you have certain people that come come into your life man that, that make impact on you Sidney was one of those people man I, I went to the bucks after my second season in the league I had watched Sidney Moncrief in the, you know, the NCAA tournament with the, you know, uh, with the three guys, the three amigos, <laughs> you know, and the things that they were doing. And, and then to get a chance to play with him and to see his everyday work habits, to see him being a captain, to see him being a player rep, and, and just to watch his professionalism was a privilege, man. And, and, it's something that I definitely, you know, it definitely helped my game playing with him. And also it just showed me how to how to go out and, and work. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I tell people MJ worked hard, but to me, Sidney Moncrief worked harder than anyone because he wasn't as physically gifted as a lot of people. So mm-hmm. he worked a lot on his game to, to make sure that he was able to do certain things. And he went out and did them, man. <laughs> he went out and got it done. Well, Craig, I want to congratulate you. You've done, uh, I, I think you've brought a lot of joy to a lot of people in the profession, and uh, you've carried yourself well. You've had a great sense of social responsibility. Have a great time on the book tour. Appreciate you, and God bless you and your, and your listeners. Craig Hodges, author of the book Long Shot, The Triumphs and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter. Now, stay tuned. Welcome back. Check out the stadium headlines on SB Nation Radio. 
how would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Well, let's get at it now. Time to talk shop once again as we examine this week's stadium headlines. And for that, jumping in and joining us, Jeff Schmidt, executive producer of Stadiums USA. StadiumsUSA.com is your one-stop shop for stadium news and information. And as we remind you, each week you can actually listen to the podcast of the program right at the site. And that's not all. You can test your stadium knowledge at our quiz site, just like my stadium knowledge is tested each and every week on Stadiums USA. And Jeff, it's great to visit with you once again. We see a major story this week. We're going to say goodbye to an arena that really has symbolized hockey success in Detroit, the great Joe Lewis Arena. It's a big building. The Red Wings season comes to a close Sunday. It'll be a tearful farewell for many, so many great memories here through the years. Take us through it, Jeff. Well, it opened, Bill, back in 1979, and now what seems like a modest $57 bucks to build it. Uh, at the time, it replaced the Detroit Olympia. As you mentioned, uh, it sits on the banks of the Detroit River right next to the Cobo Center, which was formerly Cobo Hall. You mentioned the success of the Red Wings through the years. This year marks the first time 25 years this club will not make it to the postseason. Kind of ironic as they say goodbye to Joe Lewis. Of course, the venue is named after Detroit native and former heavyweight boxer Joe Lewis. And this is interesting. It remains along with Madison Square Garden in New York as the only two NHL arenas without corporate sponsor names. Hmm. Of course, that changes in Detroit next year when it be, uh, becomes Little Caesars Arena as the home arena. So much history here with, with this place. You Many may not recall the Pistons played in this venue temporarily uh, during the 84-85 season after the roof of the Silver Dome collapsed during a snowstorm. Uh, the first ever event at Joe Louis Arena, 1979, a college basketball game between Michigan and and the University of Detroit and the venue hosted the 1980 Republican National Convention where Ronald Reagan was nominated as the Republican candidate for president. Now, this Sunday, it'll cost you some extra bucks if you're planning to attend that finale. The uh, cheapest seats are going for $230. But, Bill, if you pay the piper, you will see the Red Wings sign off this Sunday at Joe Louis Arena. Jeff, here's an item right there. This really caught my attention on elements that can affect play on a baseball diamond here's one coming into play that we have not seen before it occurred in the chicago cubs opener at bush stadium in st louis can you take us through this uh, you're all over it bill the cubs and the cardinals were scoreless in the bottom of the third 
at Bush Stadium when the Cardinals' Dexter Fowler reached on an infield hit. Uh, Aledmus Diaz then hit a potential double play ball right at the Cubs' second baseman, Javier Baez. But Baez reacted late, and as he dived for the ball, it scooted past him. As it turns out, according to Baez, he lost the ball in the white advertising sign that you see behind the plate at many major league ballparks. Mm. Well, the play ended up being a significant one in the ball game. The next inning, Baez went out to take ground balls before the inning. He, he kept an eye on that sign as he practiced taking balls. Well, Cubs manager Joe Madden talked to umpires. They changed that sign out from the rotation because it was white. Major League Baseball has vowed to make some changes to those signs that have all white backgrounds, so we could see some changes coming on uh, going forward. You know what? You did a little digging on something. It's pretty fascinating, and I'll just give you a little hint here. I got hungry looking at it. Fans that are going to go to the ballpark are going to experience some delectable food items. So, Jeff, go ahead and dig into that. All right, just a quick rundown of some of those new items if you're heading to the ballpark this year. New SunTrust Park in Atlanta features a scripted A pretzel shaped just like the A logo on the Braves hats and jerseys. <laughs> also at that new Braves park, the Tomahawk Chop Sandwich. That's a breaded fried pork chop with collard green coleslaw and barbecue sauce. Here's the rub. That sandwich costs 26 bucks. Yikes. And it, and it feeds four to six people. Bring your knives and forks for that one. <laughs> uh, Oriole Park at Camden Yards, the Mac and Cheese Twister. Macaroni and cheese in a cone with crab meat, buffalo chicken, or pulled pork. Also at Camden, how about a Baltimore spin on those chicken tenders? You can get a chicken tender Chesapeake. Those are tenders topped with crab dip. <laughs> Guaranteed rate field. Home of the White Sox features a new sandwich called the Heater. That's a jalapeno cheddar sausage topped with spicy coleslaw. And at Miller Park in Milwaukee, there's a new root beer float. Also the A.J. Bombers Milwaukee Burger. That's Colby Jack Cheese on a juicy burger with Schlitz onions. Just a few <laughs> items Just a few items there, Bill, on the ballpark menu. All right, Jeff, let's jump in the Wayback Machine and look over some important dates from stadium and ballpark history. And uh, there used to be a ballpark where the field was warm and green. All right, Bill, here you go. This week, 1977, the Seattle Kingdom opens. The Mariners lose their home opener against the Angels 7 to nothing. Uh, back in 1982, the largest crowd ever to see a baseball game in Minnesota. 52,000 packed the brand-new Metrodome to see the Twins lose to Seattle. And this week, 1992, the first game at Camden Yards, the Orioles christen their new ballpark with a shutout win over the Indians. And before we get out of here, Bill, let's head to the Stadium's USA Trivia Department and test your knowledge on some ballpark and stadium trivia. You ready to go? I'm ready. This week, 1974, Hank Aaron belted his 714th home run, tying Babe Ruth on baseball's all-time home run list. Can you name the stadium where Hammer and Hank hit his 714th home run. This tied Babe Ruth. All right. Was it Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta? Hmm. 
Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. Shea Stadium in New York, mm-hmm. or Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. Well, the game was between the Atlanta Braves and the Los Angeles Dodgers, so that wipes out three stadiums very fast. And uh, it was, I believe, Al Downing who threw the pitch, as I recall. It was Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta. Milo Hamilton was at the microphone locally for the Atlanta Braves. He called that moment. And Vin Scully was at the microphone for the Dodgers at that moment. I've heard both calls. But there was a third call. Now, I have a question for you. Do you know who did the third call? I do not know who did the third call. The third call was done by Kurt Gowdy, and that's the one that most people saw nationally because NBC cut into their programming nationally every time Hank Aaron came to bat that night. NBC had Major League Baseball at the time. So fans watching the NBC schedule saw every time Aaron came to the bat, and as the ball was flying out, Kurt Gowdy said, He's done it! And then that's it, and then just left it. And the fans, of course, just went crazy, we all know. But he captured the moment so beautifully, and that Kurt Gowdy call is uh, forgotten by many. So the answer is Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta. Now, this may have been a trick question. Because what you just described there was Hank Aaron's 715th home run that broke Babe Ruth's home run record. I asked about the game-tying one, and the game-tying one was at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati off the Reds' Jack Billingham. As I was going to say, four days later, he would hit his record-breaking home run at Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium. And you are right off the Dodgers' Al Downing. Yeah. Good stuff, Bill. Yeah. Coming up. Want to go on an amazing baseball adventure? Well, buckle your seatbelt. We have it for you next. Josh Behagian's new book examines baseball wonders, and you'll hear about it next on SB Nation Radio. Are you ready for an amazing baseball adventure? That's what most of us will be experiencing in the spring and summer. Josh Pihigian has been on the program before. His book is The Amazing Baseball Adventure, Ballpark Wonders from the Bushes to the Show. And this is uh, considered to be one of the complete guides, perhaps the most complete guide, to the most cherished ballparks at all levels. And Josh, I know you've you've really developed a network of people who feed you some of this information. I don't know how you could possibly get to all of these ballparks yourself. How have you come up with so many stories about ballparks, which people will experience when they open the pages of your book? Well, Bill, you said people feed me information, and truth be told, they also feed me when I'm on the road. I've made a lot of (laughs) friends across the country, and I sleep on couches when I'm traveling, and um, you know, sometimes I I eat on my friend's dime, and, and I know a lot of people around the country who can 
be my guide as I arrive in each city and, and visit a ballpark, maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a decade. I'm fortunate to have contacts who, who give me the inside scoop uh, from their perspective. And um, through them, I think I've been able to uh, get a good handle on what makes the ballpark special. And this book is really dedicated to those special sites within the big league parks, but also, as you said, right down to the low A level and independent ball. Um, what are those those aspects of the ballparks that make every park unique and special to visit? What are you looking for? Is it just one of those things you know it when you see it that is special? Or do you really have some criterion where you're thinking this is what it's going to take to make a list that would make it off the cutting room floor and onto the pages of your book? Well, you know, I think I look for things that you don't see anywhere else. And like one good example would be, um, let's see, the, the crazy hot dog vendor. Anyone who's been to a game in Reading, Pennsylvania to see the Fighting Phils play um, in the Eastern League. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this crazy vendor who, who rides around the field on a pretend ostrich and throws hot dogs into the stands. And you won't see that anywhere else. And the fans go crazy. I guess I look for fan reaction. That's a good example of one where fans really enjoy it. Another example, sort of a, a completely different category, would be Venerable McCoy Stadium in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Okay. Um, another one here on the East Coast. Quaint old park. And one thing that's neat about it is it was built during the Works Projects Administration in the 40s, and it was built without a dugout. So the benches are on the field of play. So the stands are up about eight feet. Mm-hmm. So you can't get an autograph. You can't reach out the conventional way and get an autograph if you're a kid. So through the years, the local fans have begun a tradition of showing up at the park with milk cartons with ropes attached to them, and they put their baseball cards or their baseball and a Sharpie in the milk carton, and they lower it down, and the players stand there eight feet below and sign, and the kids reel them back in, so they're actually fishing for autographs. And, and the kids love it, you know? So I think I look for those things that are kind of one of a, one of a kind, and baseball really lends itself to that sort of uniqueness as far as a fan experience goes. Josh, one of the places that you mentioned and one of the unique aspects that fans, many fans, will see uh, is uh, going up north of the border from where we are here in Chicago up into Wisconsin to beautiful Miller Park, which in its own right mm. is a fantastic ballpark. It's gorgeous, but there are some really special things there, I know. Yeah, they started the whole stadium racing thing, and that's an example of a ballpark tradition that began at a previous ballpark, right? It began at County Stadium. Yeah. Um, it began on the old uh, Jumbotron as just an animated race as the three sausages at the time, I think it was hot dog, Italian, and bratwurst initially, would race through an animated version of Milwaukee and then arrive at the ballpark. And one um, one bright and sunny Sunday afternoon, um, in the 1990, early 1990s, a visionary who was a friend of one of the front office executives with the Brewers had the idea to actually, when, when that animated race on the Jumbotron reached its conclusion, to actually have personified cased meat products come bumbling onto the field and run down the baseline. Um, and it was meant to just kind of be a one-time thing. And the fans ate it up, no pun intended, and um, <laughs> it became a tradition. And before you knew it, when the Brewers were opening a new park, sure enough, they were bringing their expanded roster of um, cased meat products racing across the field to their new park. And, and ever since, it's, it's been a staple there. Some of the most creative things that you will see are at the minor league level. Why does that happen? Why do we see so much innovation at the minor league level? 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think I can put my finger on it. I think, at least for me, when I, when I go to my nearest big league park in Boston, you know, it's costing me quite a bit of money, right? I'm laying down a couple hundred bucks for tickets if I'm taking four people and I'm paying to park and the concessions are extra pricey. So I actually care about who wins the game, right? Um, whereas at the minor league level, it's more about the experience. Um, the players come and go at the minor league level. You don't get attached to them over the course of seasons. Um, and while winning and losing is important to minor league fans, it's not the most important thing. It's um, a more family-inclusive experience at the minors where it's a lot cheaper to attend the game. But the outcome of the game isn't so essential. You're not spending all that money on the game. And I think it's really incumbent on the minor league teams for that reason to entertain the fans and not just the ones that, that are the hardcore fans, uh, but also the ones that are a little bit more casual, the families um, and the people who um, just want to enjoy the ballpark. So they have a little more leeway. You know, when you, when you see certain teams, like the, the most famous example is, is probably Mike Vex, um, St. Paul Saints, who are yeah. sort of made, made their name for, for innovative promotions. Um, you know, when a, team, when a team captures that lightning in a bottle that is a great promotion or a great in-between in innings stunt, um, it really does draw more fans back to the park. So it, it, it moves fans through the turnstile. Josh, continued success. All the best. Many thanks, Bill. Enjoy the season. It's baseball season. Play ball. Oh, you know I'm going to do that. Josh Pahigian is our guest. The Amazing Baseball Adventure. That's our program for this week. We sure hope you enjoyed it. But right now, we have a full day of sports coverage. And that is coming up right here on SB Nation Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.